where our desire is to faithfully proclaim God's word so that his people might grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Please join us now as we open up the scriptures together. Well, praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you, worship team, music team, for leading us in musical worship. Let's continue our worship now by turning to the book of Psalms. And we are in the 41st Psalm this morning, Psalm 41. If you'd please turn there. This is a a psalm for the choir director, and it's a psalm of David. So if you please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Psalm 41, this is God's word. How blessed is he who considers the poor. Yahweh will provide him escape in the day of calamity. Yahweh will keep him and keep him alive, and he shall be blessed upon the earth. Do not give him over to the desire of his enemies. Yahweh will sustain him upon his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to health. As for me, I said, O Yahweh, be gracious to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. My enemies speak evil of me. When will he die and his name perish? When he comes to see me, he speaks worthlessness. His heart gathers wickedness to itself. When he goes outside, he speaks it. All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise for me calamity, saying, A vile thing is poured out on him. When he lies down, he will not rise up again. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. But you, O Yahweh, be gracious to me. Raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me, because my enemy makes no shout in triumph over me. As for me, you uphold me in in my integrity, and you make me stand firm in your presence forever. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. We say the same, Lord. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel. Blessed be the Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We give you all the glory, all the praise, all the honor, all the worship that you and you alone deserve this morning. It's a privilege to open up your text and be instructed by it. So that's what we pray this morning. You would change our hearts through this text. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. If you were with us last week, and you can remember Israel's greatest earthly king, King David, magnifying the name of his Lord, praising the great I Am for his wondrous deeds, which were too numerous to count, delighting in the various attributes of Yahweh, all while exhorting the great assembly to do the same, to offer their genuine and sincere reverential worship and adoration to the only one who is worthy of our sincere reverential and uh, worship and adoration, the one who hears our cries, the one who listens to the pleas of those who are his, who establishes us, sets our feet upon the rock and puts a new song in our mouth, a song which tells of the the absolute dependence upon those attributes, a song sung by faithful men and women of God who are living out the rest of their lives here on this corrupted and cursed earth. He says, remember, Yahweh is trustworthy. He is worthy of your absolute and total surrender, your total submission, faith, and trust in him. He is incomparable to anything or anyone in all of creation, any man or so-called God. He is altogether righteous. He is altogether good. He is faithful. He has a steadfast, loyal love for those who belong to him. He is truthful as he is compassionate and he is perfectly compassionate he's perfectly just he is perfectly holy and therefore he is our help and he alone is our salvation so david says let all those who love your salvation say continually yahweh be magnified 
In Psalm 40, David passed these wondrous truths of God's character along to the people of his kingdom. Again, this was for the choir master, just like today. And he wasn't passing them, the, them along as, you know, like a college professor passes along statement of fact after statement of fact after statement of fact to his students. He wasn't really <coughs> giving them a, a running commentary on the books of Moses here, but he was giving them a testimony a personal testimony of the steadfast, faithful, loyal love of Yahweh and that steadfast love and how it had been extended to him, a testimony of Yahweh's faithfulness, a testimony of his mercy. He wanted all of Israel to recognize this as well. Yahweh is faithful. Yahweh is merciful. Therefore, he is worthy of your full devotion. He is worthy of your sincere worship. Lean on him in every aspect of your life through ups and downs, through the good times and the bad times, when we are strong and when we are weak, especially when we are weak. As for me, David concluded, I am afflicted and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help. You are the one who rescues me. Do not delay, O my God. Psalm 41 picks up right where he left off here. Uh, This testimony continues, now includes details of that rescue. It it includes the details of the rescue coming to pass in David's life here, at a time when he was down. He was way down. This may have been the, the low point of David's life. He was dismayed. He was betrayed. He was defamed and disgraced. This was a time when he was at his weakest. When that happens, he reminds himself at the beginning of the psalm of the one who is merciful, the one who is trustworthy. Verse 1 says, How blessed is he who considers the poor. Yahweh will provide him escape in the day of calamity. Last week it was, How blessed is the man who has made Yahweh his trust. Now, Blessed is he who considers the poor, the needy, the down and out, the societal outcast, the lowest of the low. Blessed or happy are those who show mercy to the weak, to the helpless. David says, I know Yahweh, I know his character, I know he is merciful, and specifically to those who are merciful. This was a 10th century BC rendition of the fifth beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And of course, Jesus is the greatest example of mercy that's ever been demonstrated on this earth. He's the greatest example of mercy or a benevolent goodness being extended to those who are in woefully pitiful and miserable conditions, which we studied this in Mark a couple of years ago. Remember when we studied Mark? You remember how folks in the first century, uh, Palestine, how they felt about the sick and the suffering, the broke and the blind? the deaf and the deformed, the maimed, the leopards, the lepers, they thought these people are less than human. They're, they're vile. They should be avoided at all costs. And yet, when God came down to the earth that he spoke into existence and he walked upon this earth, who was it that he typically showed mercy to? That's right. People such as these. Jesus talked with them. He uh, walked with them. Think of the man in, in the, the, the demoniac in the, garris- in the garrisons who was in spiritual bondage. He was in such spiritual bondage that the people of the region chained him up and put him in a cave. But Jesus talked with him. He, he healed him. He delivered him from demonic possession, from a legion of demons. And then he says to this man who was now in his right man- mind, go home to your people. Report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had what? Mercy on you. He had mercy on you. Divine mercy for this guy? Are you kidding me? Why this guy of all people? You know, this guy ends up being one of the first missionaries. Do you know that? Because Jesus says, go tell. Go tell what the Lord has done for you. And that's right, this guy. Then they came to Jericho. As he was leaving Jericho, he and his disciples, uh, there was a large crowd, and a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road, and 
When he had heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus answered him and said, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. No, 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 Jesus, Jesus, you got the wrong guy here. The priests are that way. The temple is that way. The sanctuary is that way. Why are you wasting your time with this beggar, the lowest of the low, sitting on the side of a filthy road, trampled on by nasty feet in the refuse of animals that pass by all day long? Why are you wasting your time with this guy? Not this guy, Jesus. Yet, Jesus, God in human flesh, notices this man. He converses with this man. He has mercy on this man. Uh, Mark says immediately this, this man regained his sight, began following Jesus on the road. All throughout the Gospels, we see the same thing coming from the lips of the oppressed. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on me. Have mercy on my son. Have mercy on my daughter. Have mercy on me, a Canaanite woman, a, a paralytic man with his friends who are lowering him down, a man with a tormented son, ten lepers. Jesus was continually showing mercy to those he came into contact with. So he told his disciples, he told his followers, his learners, go and do likewise, gents. Uh, have compassion on people. Have pity on the pitiable. Be merciful. Consider them for once. And in turn, you men who are pitiable yourselves, you just don't know it yet, you will receive mercy. Right? That's what he says. And David's saying the same thing right here. He says, How blessed is he who considers the poor, the weak, the helpless. Blessed are the merciful. They will receive mercy. Then he goes on to tell exactly how they will receive mercy. First, Yahweh will provide him escape in a day of calamity, meaning he will deliver him in a time of trouble. He will be rescued by the Lord. He then says in verse 2, Yahweh will keep him and keep him alive. The Lord will ensure that such a merciful person, person isn't overwhelmed by trouble. He isn't overcome by trouble. He will deliver them. He will keep them alive. So he will preserve their life. And he shall be blessed upon the earth, and he will not give him over to the desires of his enemies. There you go. Blessed are the merciful. Verse 3 shows us even more blessings. This is an important one to highlight here. Yahweh will sustain him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to health. Now, this is a pivotal moment in this psalm, okay? If you don't hear me now, you could be confused at a later point here. This is a little sneak peek into what's going to happen here. Verses 4 through 10 are a unit, okay? They're, they're a first-hand account, a personal testimony of the fulfillment of God's promises in verses 1 through 3, okay? So, verses 1 through 3, promises from God. You can take this to the bank, David says. If you are merciful... If you are compassionate, if you consider the poor, the weak, the helpless, and needy among us, David says, you will be kept. You will be protected. You will be blessed. You will be sustained. You will be restored. David says, I know this to be true because I lived it. Let me tell you how. That's what he does in verses 4 through 10. Now, before the health, wealth, and prosperity folks start salivating at the thought of running out to do some pithy little charitable act so that God will then be required to abundantly bless them in this so temporal, earthly life of theirs, notice what David says in verse 4. He says this, As for me, I said, Yahweh, be gracious to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. Now, that doesn't sound like TBN talk to me. <laughs> heal my back, heal my arthritis, my hearing, lengthen my one leg that's shorter than the other, sure. <laughs> but heal my soul? I have sinned against you? Hmm. Let's look at this a bit closer here. David says, as for me, I said, not I am saying, not I will say, but I said in the past, I said to Yahweh, be gracious to me. 
What that means is as he's writing the psalm, as he's sitting there and, and pinning the psalm, he's telling of a time that he prayed to Yahweh at some point in the past, have mercy on me, consider me, and in the process, revealing for us who the truly needy one is. Okay? He's the needy. He says the same thing in verse 10. Look at that. Uh, both pleas for mercy, bookending this prayer, Yahweh, be gracious to me, have mercy on me, in a divine demonstration of the promises he just got done stating in verses 1 through 3. So then, the question of the psalm then becomes, was David a man who considered the poor? That's what we've got to find out here. Would he then be shown mercy to, uh, from God? And that's what we're going to find out here. I'll tell you this. This prayer of his, he's off to a good start, okay? As he recognizes his true position before a holy and just God. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. You you see, this is a major obstacle in the hearts of prideful men and women all over our world today. This this is what the, the Pharisees of Jesus' day couldn't admit or see for themselves. This is why Jesus called them blind. He says, you're blind guides. They didn't think they needed God's mercy. They thought they were good to go. Mercy? Mercy? Are you kidding me? From God? We have Abraham. We have the law. We have the temple. We have the prophets. We have the sanctuary. What do we need mercy for? And you know what he said? Fools. You fools. Not David, though. David knows his true position before Yahweh. He says, I'm broken. I I myself am pathetic. I'm, I'm pitiable. I'm miserable, I'm I'm lowly, I'm afflicted and oppressed. I'm a wretched creature myself. I need healing, is what he says. I I have sinned against you. Heal me, not just my body, not just my body from the pangs of physical affliction and illness, but much, 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 much more importantly, I'd ask you to heal my soul, my everlasting soul. It needs healing, why? Because it's sick. It's wicked. Heal my everlasting soul, he says. Just like in Psalm 51, many other places. Have mercy on me according to your abundant mercy. Sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Sustain me with a willing spirit. David knows it's only those who have been shown mercy from God who can then truly extend mercy to others. Oh, Yahweh, be gracious to me. Then my life will be preserved. I will not be given over to the desire of my enemies, who he reveals in verse 5. My my enemies speak evil against me, saying, when will he die and his name perish? Have you ever had someone say this about you? Think about this. Can you imagine knowing that somebody out there in this world was saying this of you? When is he going to die already? When is is she going to die? I can't wait until she's gone, not just from the book club or the office or the church, but like gone, gone. I think, I think malice is the best word here. David is saying people are running around speaking maliciously about me, not only longing for my death, but then asking when, when will his name perish. Not only did they want him to die, but they wanted his name, his legacy, everything that he stood for to be wiped from the history books, to, to be erased from the memories of people. They didn't even want him to exist anymore. They wanted him completely eliminated Now, anyone who's read the full accounts of King David knows about his generally compassionate nature, okay? Think of his sparing King Saul on multiple occasions. He could have easily killed him, but he didn't. Uh, Think of the compassion that he showed to Jonathan's crippled son. Think of his uh, sincere desire to shepherd the people of Israel. Overall, he was a pretty good guy, right? Of course, he had a few really disgraceful moments. He would be the first to tell you. Uh, The whole sleeping with a married woman and then having her husband murdered wasn't exactly a high point in his life. But apart from that, he was merciful in many ways. Generally speaking, he was very admired. He was very adored in this kingdom. He was very fair. He was very wise. He was honest. God even called him a, a man after his own heart, right? 
The question needs to be asked then, who in the world would want to wish such dreadful things upon David? Answer, those who are jealous of his position of power. Last week we mentioned just a couple of them, King Saul, his own son Absalom. They both wanted him gone. They wanted him dead. James Boyce said the same thing, quote, <coughs> why should David have had so many enemies if he was actually a good king and a moral person? The reason is jealousy as well as a desire for power in those who were jealous. This is instructive for us because jealousy is undoubtedly a major cause of strife within the church. Those who attack uh, others usually cloak their intentions with pious language. They say they're merely contending for the truth, but actually they're usually just jealous of someone who has greater popularity or greater influence than they do. They hope that by toppling the other leader, they will be able to acquire his influence for themselves, end quote. Jealousy, envy, bitter, bitter envy and uh, selfish ambition, James calls it in chapter 3 of his letter. David says, my enemies, they speak evil against me. They want me to die, both me and my name. Then he says in verse 6, and when he comes to me, he speaks worthlessness. His heart gathers wickedness to itself. When he goes outside, he speaks it. So again, these are David's peers here. Okay, this is not talking about King Saul or Absalom here, not even the enemies of the surrounding nations. This is not the Philistines or the Edomites or the Moabites or the Ammonites here. We're talking about folks who actually came in to see him. They, they visited him. They were, they were close to him. People within the kingdom, maybe even people within the palace now, many reputable commentators believe that David's word here, uh, words here at the beginning of verse 6, when he comes to see me, is a reference to what we alluded to earlier. Uh, God shows mercy to the merciful by sustaining them on their sick beds. Many people believe that this was a, a prayer that was prayed at a time when David was deathly ill, and that could be the case. We don't have any record of it in the scriptures, but... Just because we don't have record of it doesn't mean it didn't happen, right? First century Palestine wasn't exactly a, exactly a bastion of uh, sanitary standards. It was pretty gross back then. He could have been sick. Uh, his peers would come in. His so-called friends and loyal subjects, they'd come in and they'd say, they'd say all the right things. You've heard it. Oh, David, we hope you feel better. You know, you don't look so bad, David. You know, is there anything we can do for you? Don't worry now. We got everything control, under control out there. You know, we'll be praying for you. But as soon as they leave the king's chambers, it's a completely different story. So they say, man, I can't stand this guy. Can you? I can't stand David. I, can't, I, I feel like he's going to die soon. He looks like he's going to die. I can't wait until he's gone. You know, to be honest, Jerusalem would be in such better condition if he wasn't around. Maybe we should start planning as if he wasn't here right now. Anyway, let's go back to work. That's the kind of wickedness that, that resides within the hearts of people with selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. It's the attrition of man. The, a continual grinding down of others with the tongue, the, the slander, the backbiting, the gossip, smiling in your face, speaking of brotherhood, oh, brother and sisterhood, then maliciously cutting you down behind your back. Again, this is, this is unfortunately all too common in our churches here. We're not exempt from this. David says, they come in here, they talk me up, they give me the cliche, get well soon card, we'll be praying for you, brother, but it's all worthless talk. He knows it. It's worthless, he says. It's good for nothing. Do you see what David is, is looking for here in his weakened state? Do you see this? What's he looking for? A little mercy. That's right. A little bit of compassion. But among this crew, it's nowhere to be found. So he prays in verse 7. All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise for me calamity, saying a vile thing is poured out upon him, that when he lies down, he will not rise up again. So not only are these guys smiling in his face and slandering him behind his back, but they're actually devising schemes to get rid of him. And in the process, uh, seeking to blame some vile thing or evil thing, actually literally a thing from Belial from his, for his downfall. They're saying, you know why he's in such trouble, don't you? You know. You know why he's sick right now. You know why he's helpless right now, right? He must have sinned 
<laughs> he's a sinner. He must have sinned greatly against the Lord. Yahweh is cursing him. Yahweh is going to kill him. Guess it's the Lord's will for someone else to slide on into that position of power. Again, we should start planning. We should start planning. And you know what? Honestly, if you look back to verse 4, you can see that this crossed David's mind as well. He's praying to the Lord, saying, You know I'm down in the pit of despair. Frankly, I know I deserve it. You will always be blameless in your judgment against me. I've sinned against you, but I'm asking for your grace. I need you. We can begin to see why. He's in real trouble here, David. He goes on to elaborate about his needy condition in verse 9. In fact, this may be the lowest point yet. Look at verse 9. He says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Now, this is familiar language to the Christian, right? Jesus uses this in John chapter 13 as he says to the 12 disciples, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. I'll have you turn there in a moment, but let's go back to David here and see why he's using it. Again, in this prayer, he says this, even my close friend whom I trusted, he ate my bread. Meaning he was really close, like he was in private, confidential kingdom-shaping meetings and dinners. Literally, this means he was a man of my peace. He was a, a trusted, loyal confidant and companion, one whom the king felt completely safe around. This, this close friend of mine who I trusted has proven to have uh, treacherous intentions. That's what it means when, when the, the scripture says he lifted up his heel against another. This literally means he has made great his heel. In other words, he has lifted up his heel and kicked me or stomped on me while I was down at my lowest point. This is the opposite of mercy. It's the opposite of compassion. It's, he took advantage of me in my most vulnerable state. And again, I ask, uh, have you ever had a situation like this in your life? Where, where someone you thought was your friend, your close friend, maybe even a family member, someone you thought had your back, ended up turning, upon, turning on you, uh, slandering you to the point where you fell on your knees in agonizing prayer, only to have them uh, maliciously finish you off with a swift kick to the back or something like that. Have you ever had that happen? Well, it can be devastating to our souls. When, when stuff like this happens, when we're betrayed by someone closest to us. And we do see accounts in David's life where this very thing happened. Maybe most notably is in the 15th chapter of 2 Samuel. Go ahead and turn there with me. That way we get everybody recharged here. Coffee is right back there. 15th sa- uh, chapter of 2 Samuel. Keep your finger in Psalm 41, though. Okay. This is right in the thick of his battle with his son, Absalom, who sought to usurp his kingship and his throne. Absalom had a serious case of bitter envy and selfish ambition. He tells everyone that David won't listen to them, but he will, saying in verse 4, Oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land. Then every man who has any case or judgment could come to me, and I would justify him. He then tricks David into letting him go down to Hebron where he makes himself king to, become, to come against his father, sending spies out into the city saying, Absalom is new king of Hebron. And almost everyone buys it, okay? Absalom now has this huge army behind him. Report gets back to David. David flees. David leaves Jerusalem. Then Absalom, he comes riding into town as the new self-appointed king. He rides in there. He's the king, but he's not alone, Okay? In fact, coming into the kingdom right next to him is one of David's most trusted advisors named Ahithophel. Ahithophel. Now, I know that we have some pregnant ladies in here. Uh, We have some pregnant ladies this morning. Praise the Lord for that. He has smiled upon us with all these little babies. Praise the Lord. But just some friendly pastoral counsel. Uh, As you and your husband thumb through those baby books and see what you're going to name the kid, or you look up biblical names on the internet, the one thing that you should avoid is the name Ahithophel. (laughs) We don't want to see any little Ahithophels running around Lakewood Bible Chapel, okay? No little girls named Jezebel or 
Herodias, no little boys named Ahab or Ahaz or Judas, certainly, certainly no Ahithophels. That's just a tip, though. You do what you want. But let me tell you a little about, about Ahithophel first, okay? Then you make the decision. Again, trusted advisor to King David. In fact, if you look at chapter 16, verse 23, Samuel says his counsel was, one, was as if one asked the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel regarded by both David and Absalom. He, Ahithophel had prophet-like status to these guys. David trusted him with everything. He was like Samuel but he, or Nathan. But he would, he would soon be the recipient of his, st- his stomping heel. Okay, he's about to get kicked. Absalom comes into the Jerusalem and says, man, what am I going to do to convince all the people that I'm the man now? He says to Ahithophel, give your advice. What shall we do? And this is chapter 16, verse 21. Ahithophel says to Absalom, go into your father's concubines whom he has left to keep the house. Then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself odious to your father. The hands of all who are with you will also be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof. Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Of course, this is after the Bathsheban escapades. That should be a sermon title in itself. I don't even know if it's a real word, but... This is all after the Bathsheba and escapades when the Lord said, The sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says Yahweh, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives from before your sight and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. Indeed, David, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. You see how everything's tying together with these pleas for mercy here? Be gracious. Heal me. Heal my soul. I have sinned against you. So anyhow, Ahithophel says to Absalom, this is your shot, kid. Take it. Do it. And of course, Absalom does it. He does it. He goes in, he sleeps with all the king's women right in front of everyone. David betrayed first by his own son and now by his close friend in whom he trusted. As Ahithophel says in chapter 17, let me finish David off once and for all. Okay, this guy's not going to be a problem anymore. Give me 12,000 men to pursue him. He'll be dead before breakfast. But David has a, a spy in there, one who convinces Absalom to go against his counsel of Ahithophel. And Samuel says, listen to this, Yahweh had ordained to thwart the good counsel of Ahithophel so that Yahweh might bring, bring calamity upon Absalom. You know what that looks like to me? Mercy being extended to the merciful. That looks like a direct answer to prayer to me. Yahweh did not give David over to the, excuse me, to the desires of his enemies. In fact, a chapter later, he says, the text says, when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey, he arose, he went to his home, to his city, and set his house in order. Then he strangled himself. Thus he died, he was buried in the grave of his father. Ahithophel dead. Absalom also dead. He had had three spears run through him while he hung from an oak tree by his hair. David? Protected. He he was delivered, kept, blessed, sustained, and restored. Now go over to John chapter 13 with me. No more 2 Samuel. You can take your finger out of there. Keep it in Psalm 41 now. Go ahead now. John 13. You've got to see this here. <clears throat> Jesus just gets done instituting the Lord's Supper. Again, a symbolic demonstration of the greatest example of mercy ever shown to anyone. As the Son of God himself is about to be delivered up as a living sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice. Look what he says in verse 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, 
A slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. I know these. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak about all of you. I know the ones whom I have chosen. But that the scripture may be fulfilled, he who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Now, what do you notice that's the difference between Jesus' words there in verse 18 and David's words back in Psalm 41, verse 10? What is the difference there? What does Jesus leave out of that reference? Do you see it? Go ahead, Jake. Next slide. Even my close friend in whom I trusted. Unlike David and Ahithophel, Jesus never trusted Judas. Not from the beginning. Why not? Because he knows the hearts of men. Uh, Again, he knew (coughs) the intentions of Judas' heart. He knows the intentions and motivations of everyone's heart, including all of our hearts here today. He knows every intricate, tiny little detail of your heart, what you're thinking, what you're hiding, what you're harboring, what you're communicating. He knows everything. He knew Judas so well, and he knew that Judas was a useful idiot in the sense that he was just doing what needed to be done to accomplish divine redemption. Those aren't my words, by the way. Look at Jesus. He elaborates. He says, this is happening that the scriptures may be fulfilled. From now on, I'm telling you, before it occurs, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives me, excuse me, truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives anyone I send receives me. He who receives me receives him who sent me, and he knows the heart. So he knows if we've truly received him or if we're just playing church, if we're just playing the game. Back to David in Psalm 31, Okay. It sure seems to me like this betrayer was Ahithophel, though the text doesn't say that for sure. One thing is clear. David was a weak man at this point. Okay, He was very weak. But in his weakened state, he provides both the people of Israel and for us a key principle from this psalm. Rather than calling out to his fellow man for mercy, he went right to the source of mercy and compassion. Again, ending this prayer in verse 10 with, but you, O Yahweh, be gracious to me and raise me up. He then makes a really surprising statement. He says, be gracious to me and raise me up so that, so that I might repay them. In other words, my enemies should pay for what they've done. And I'd love to be the one who collected the debt here. This seems to be a far cry from the usual Do not let my enemies exalt over me. Stretch forth your mighty hand against their wrath. Sharpen your sword and wet your sword and bend your bow against mine enemy. Type prayers that he prayed on so many other occasions. We don't see that here. No, this time he's like, I'll do it. Let me be a part of carrying out this judgment if it should be your will. And I got to be honest, we can sympathize with this a little bit to some degree. You know that old saying, Uh, I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. Yeah, I don't say that. There are people out there uh, today doing exceedingly wicked things to other people. The most vulnerable people among us. That makes me say, man, you know, a bit of smiting would probably serve them right. (laughs) But we know that vengeance belongs to the Lord. Right? And justice will be served, if not in this life, then the next. So we can take comfort in that. And our hope can be in that. David knew this as well. This wasn't a desire to satiate the lusts of revenge anyhow. He was, a, he was the king of a nation who had both the authority and the ability to inflict justice upon those who would seek to thwart the plans of the theocracy. So it's a bit different here than just wanting somebody to get what's coming to him. Anyhow, uh, <clears throat> with that ambitious call for restoration and reckoning, David closes the testimony of his past prayer for mercy. Verses 11 and 12 tell of David's confidence in that he had indeed been shown the mercy that he spoke of in verses 1 through 3. He determined that Yahweh had indeed heard his pleas. Look at verse 11. By this I know that you delight in me. 
because my enemy makes no shout in triumph over me. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity. You make me stand firm in your presence forever. So again, verses 1 through 3, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Verses 4 through 10, here's a time when I myself was in need of mercy. I was low, I was poor, I was pitiable, I was weak, I was needy, but I recognized my true position before God and I cried out for his gracious compassion. Verses 11 through 12, I am among the merciful because I have clearly been shown mercy. Yahweh provided him an escape in the day of calamity. Yahweh kept him and kept him alive. Yahweh did bless and protect and sustain and restore King David, didn't he? Yeah. And you know what? David didn't even have to compromise on his own character or what he knew to be true about God's character to prosper in this life, did he? He didn't have to make God be what God wasn't so that he could get some temporal gain. And that's Psalm 41. It's also the end of the first of the five books of the Psalter. Now there's five separate divisions of the Psalter. This is the end of uh, the first, he, he begins with it, blessed are those, he ends with it, blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel. From everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. My brothers and sisters, we have an obligation to be merciful to others. In fact, if we are true believers, if we are actual, born-again, regenerate, spirit-indwelled believers and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's not a matter of if we will be merciful, but when and how God will use our uh, new merciful and compassionate natures to bring glory to his name, we will be merciful because he is merciful. And his spirit now dwells within us and he works through us. But I think it's good for all of us, I think it's good for everyone to examine ourselves to ensure that we are showing mercy for the right reasons, okay? This world is full of people out there doing great things, compassionate things, very merciful things. They're showing compassion to people, they're helping out people, they're providing them with practical services, with monetary help, with housing, goods, counsel, and medication, other various felt needs, but they don't have the proper motivation. Let's be honest. In most cases, they do it because they feel some worldly sorrow or general grief over another's circumstances. Or in this age of social justice, they may be pressured into feeling guilty because of they enjoy some privileges that other groups don't get to enjoy. But my friends, that's the wrong motivation for extending mercy. Even worse, are those doing charitable deeds out of some sort of religious obligation or expectation? Of course, we'd be foolish to think that there aren't those out there who participate in merciful acts simply to bolster their reputation in the community or in the society in general. See almost every politician, corporate CEO, professional athlete, or entertainer in this country, for example. Uh, the point is this, unless genuine and sincere compassion are extended to others and with the proper motivation, namely that God would receive all the glory, then I'm afraid it will all be for naught. It's a waste of time. It's for nothing. Amen. I'm here to tell you, the only people on this earth who know how to extend true lasting, genuine mercy to, and, and compassion to pitiable and miserable humanity upon this earth are those miserable, pitiable creatures who have first been shown mercy themselves and from their creator. Because like David, we know that in no way, uh, shape, or form do we deserve mercy from anybody especially an infinitely holy God. We don't deserve his mercy. None of us deserve anything from him other than his wrath and his judgment, his condemnation. We have violated his holy law. We have failed miserably to live up to his perfect standards for our lives. We were conceived and born in sin, and we continued in that sin willingly in open defiance and rebellion against him. It's not easy to hear, but it doesn't matter if it's easy to hear. That's just what the truth is. That's just who we are. 
Before he had mercy on us, we were totally depraved. We were his enemies. We weren't his close confidants and trusted friends. We were an offense to him. Our lives were repugnant in the sight of a holy God, this perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, perfectly just God of all creation. Only true believers know that. And we don't deny it, okay? We don't try to soften or gloss over our original sinful condition, our our original depraved nature, because softening the truths of our depravity only diminishes that which was necessary to deliver us from it. If we weren't so bad, well, why'd Jesus come? Only true believers know the true definition of mercy. Divine goodness extended to the lowest of the low. Only true believers know of true graciousness, unmerited, undeserved favor from above, because that was us. We know we deserve to be separated from his love forever. We know we deserved his wrath and torment and hell for all of eternity. But by his grace, by his amazing grace, his his abundant mercy, he allowed us to cry out in desperation along with David, heal our soul. We have sinned against you. We need you to heal us. We need you to save us, rescue us, deliver us from ourselves, from the bondage of our own sin nature. Deliver us from the wrath that you would be so rightly justified in in inflicting upon us. Please deliver us. Lord, have mercy on us. And the good news is, he has had mercy on us. By his grace alone, he has healed our souls. He has given us the ability to turn from our wicked ways if we belong to him. Like David, he has displayed his steadfast love and graciousness to us. He sent his one and only son, his perfect son. His perfectly pure, sinless, spotless, sacrificial lamb, God in human flesh into this world who was born of a virgin. He was born under the law, yet he kept the law perfectly in its entirety with no deviation from the left to the right in thought, word, deed, or action. He kept every aspect of it. He was perfect. As he walked the earth that he created, displaying mercy and compassion upon the lowest of the low, the whores, the tax collectors, the blind, the lame, the deaf, the lepers, the cripples, the men and women that the society had discarded and the religious leaders reviled at every term. He gave them mercy. He ate with them. He drank with them. Even knowing full well of the depravity that was in their hearts, he was gentle with them. He touched them. He fed them. He taught them. He wept with them. He healed them. He knew what was in their hearts. He delivered them from their oppression, their affliction. And again, in the greatest display of mercy the world has ever known, he gave his body for them. And for us, even. If, though he knew the depravity in our hearts, he gave his body for us. In the greatest act of mercy throughout all of eternity, God The Son, this perfect Son, shed His blood on the cross to cover, to atone for the sin of all who would believe in His gospel. Justice has been satisfied. The wrath of God has been satisfied for all who would recognize that they are sinners in desperate need of salvation, that they could never save themselves because we're poor and needy and weak and we're exactly the kind of people Christ came into this world to save and to forgive the desperate. Those who recognized that they could in no way save themselves, but instead had to fall on their face and ask for his mercy, his forgiveness. Does this describe you this morning, my friend? Does this describe you? Is, is this true of you? 
If not, I would implore you to cry out to him and believe in this gospel. The gospel that says that Jesus came into this world to die in the place of sinners, all who would believe in him by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The gospel that says that he was then raised from the dead. The gospel that send, says that he ascended back up to the right hand of the Father. He ascended to heaven from where he's currently ruling and reigning in the hearts of those who belong to him. He's currently ruling and reigning in our hearts through the spirit that he sent into the world, just like he said he would. His spirit who will indwell you and conform you into his image. His spirit who will enable you to extend true mercy and true God-honoring compassion to others. His spirit who will never leave you. His spirit who will never forsake you. Do you know of this mercy, my friends? Do you know of this salvation? then go and be merciful to others. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray, and we'll have Noel and the team come up and lead us in musical worship. <clears throat> Thank you. Our Heavenly Father, we, uh, we just give you praise and glory for awakening our hearts to the reality of our own depraved condition. And if there's anything that's holding us back from fully acknowledging that, rid us of it. Show us so that we can then have the proper response by falling on our knees and crying out to you, Lord, have mercy. I pray for anyone here today, Lord, who doesn't know you, that you would do a sovereign work in their hearts. You would humble them change their hearts, save their souls. We want to be with them for 10,000 times 10,000 years, giving praise to your name for what you've done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ, who will hold us fast. We rejoice this morning in this, and we sing these praises to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you have been ministered to through this week's exposition of God's Word. If you would like more information about our church and services, please visit our website or email us at info, that's I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Again, that's info, I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Lakewood Bible Chapel.